Don't you love a rags to riches story? I think it's something that is attractive to people all over the world, but Americans particularly, it is in the consciousness psyche of Americans who love such stories. Like Abraham Lincoln, born in a log college, a log home, log cabin, becoming the president of the United States. Isn't that a great story? We love it. It happens to be true, which makes it even greater. But we, we love this. It, we make movies about it. Think about um, the movie Dave. Do you know the movie Dave? My favorite movies. Ordinary guy who just happens to look like the president ends up being president out of a, it's kind of a switch thing. And he actually does a really great job, better than a professional politician. I know it's a surprising thing. Um, Think about Prince and the Pauper. Think about Cinderella. I mean, it's, it's all through our literature. I was, uh, I remember I was in college at the time, 1980, uh, on my way to seminary soon, when uh, they had the Olympics where the USA built, beat the USSR in ice hockey. It was called The Miracle on Ice. Movies, of course, made about it. It was unbelievable. I was living in Boston in 2004 when the, the Boston Red Sox, yes, the lowly Red Sox, who had suffered over 90 years of waiting for a championship, and their arch enemy, the New York Yankees, had won the first three games of a seven-game series. And I watched as the Sox won game four, game five, game six, game seven. I still get chill bumps thinking about it. <laughs> it was unbelievable. We, we had to call off classes. We couldn't even have a class. It was the whole of Boston shut down because the unthinkable had happened. We just love things like that. We love come from behind victories. Uh, I mean, here in Kentucky, Seabiscuit, Seabiscuit, obscure small horse who suddenly in the 30s becomes the greatest horse in America. I mean, this is, these are the stories that we love, that we, we cherish. And so when you read the Christmas story, in, particularly in the synoptics, you might be tempted to think that the Christmas story is kind of like that. Another amazing rise from obscurity. Here is this little baby born in a backwoods country, nowhere near a superpower, who out of obscurity in a, in a stable, wrapped in cloth, slept in strips of cloth, who becomes the most influential, greatest religious leader in the universe. That, it sounds like a, like a rags to riches story. And so in some ways, you might be tempted to think that this is just another example of that kind of phenomenon that happens in the world. And then you come to the Gospel of John. John is the one that actually frames the whole thing so we don't forget exactly what, is, what we are about here in Advent as we prepare for our celebration of Christmas. It is John's gospel that reminds us of the central fact of what this season is all about. And we, of course, know how difficult it is to actually remember this season well. 
I mean, let's not forget about the things like, uh, you know, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, chestnuts roasting by the open fire. Uh, and there's no end to it, is there? You know, Santa Claus. Uh, there's no end to all of the kind of uh, accruements that have kind of encrusted the whole thing. But even when you read the Gospel accounts, it, it sometimes, you know, you can get really busy with all of the, the things that surround the event. When I was a pastor, we had, like most churches do, a wonderful tradition, a beloved, beloved tradition of having the Christmas story reenacted by the children of the church. And every year, a lot of effort went into this, all the preparations. My dear wife, Julie, spent countless hours making costumes and pinning, you know, angel wings on small children. And I never forget, uh, what, there was always an interpretive quality to the whole thing, especially, for example, the innkeeper. I remember some years where the child was there, and he or she was the, you know, the appointed innkeeper, and the, the Joseph and Mary come and knock on the door, you know, and there were some innkeepers that were like this. I am so sorry that we don't have room in the inn. I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. We're all booked up. But I've got a really nice cave out back, and I'm going to put fresh straw in there. I'm going to make them accommodate. We're going to take care of you. Don't worry. There's just no room in the inn. Others, like, there's no room in the inn. Boom, go away. Slam the door. <laughs> it was so interesting to see kind of like how we interpret these parts of the Christmas story. Those are wonderful things. But when you get to John's gospel and you open it up, people might be tempted to think, oh my goodness, John doesn't have a Christmas story. Ah, John definitely has a Christmas story. It's just when you open up John's gospel, we don't see any angels. There are no angels. There are no shepherds. There's no wise men. There's no Caesar Augustus. There's no inn. There's no stable. There's no swaddling clothes. By the way, there's not even Joseph and Mary. Everything is taken. It's kind of like John wants to say, okay, you've heard the, the gospel accounts. John, of course, writes presupposing the existence of the others. You've heard that. That's wonderful. But let's just put all that aside and let's not forget what Christmas is about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Amen? That's the Christmas story. And John opens the whole thing. I mean, in John, you have one character to the Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice how John opens it up by recalling the creation of the world and how God let there be light, there was light. So the whole creation and light is, is reflected in this account. And yet he also draws upon Hellenistic language. Of course, this is where it says logos. In the beginning was the Logos. This was a word found in Middle Platonism. It had nothing remotely to do with God. It was kind of like a, what do we call it, like the force, the all-pervading force of the universe. There was no way that this Logos could ever become enfleshed in Greek, you know, understanding of Logos. For so, so John to say the word became flesh. This is a powerful contextual bridge to the Greek world, and yet and wrapped up in the beautiful language of the Old Testament. It's an amazing, amazing story. So John is reminding us that the central message of Christmas is about God entering into the world in Jesus Christ. Now, 
we have to be reminded of this because the very fact it says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, John's recalling that the second person of the Trinity is eternally present with God the Father. The Trinity is colloquially there, present in fellowship and harmony from all time, all eternity. Jesus didn't like become, uh, the same word as Trinity didn't become at the, at the incarnation. This is God entering into the world. This is a very powerful thing. There's nothing quite like this. And of course the Arians, and to this day the Jehovah Witness, they think he was, uh, you know, eternally in the mind of God or something. That's not at all what we have here. He's with God. He is in full fellowship with God. And yet in verse 10, we're told the world, though he made the world, he was in the world, and though through him the entire world was made. So here is the, this is like, I don't know if you heard this, but Shakespeare apparently actually liked to play like parts in his own plays. He, played, he was like the ghost in Hamlet or something. He just enjoyed that. He liked, he liked to enter into his own play. It's as if God, who creates the whole universe, he is the author of the whole drama. He steps into the drama, becomes a central player, becomes the central player in the drama. And yet, the world did not recognize him. The world still does not recognize what this season is about. They sentimentalize it endlessly. They commercialize it endlessly. They, various ways they respond to it, they don't actually understand what it's about. And so John tells in verse 14 what it's about. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or he tabernacled among us. This, by the way, this is the verse where we get the word incarnation from. In the flesh. The Word became flesh. This is that uh, Sark's Akinato. Uh, the, the word became flesh, logos, aginico, sarks. And then he says, he made his dwelling among us. This is this whole thing of his setting his tent among us. Recalls the, the wilderness wanderings. Remember our Psalter reading just a moment ago where they're longing for a place for God to dwell. They saw it in the ark. They long for it to come again. And there's this promise that God would make his dwelling place. They hoped for Jerusalem. They hoped for the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't realize that God himself would show up in the person of Jesus Christ. All of this is amazing fulfillment of those longings that are there. The church fathers, of course, struggled early on about how to talk about this, the incarnation. One of my favorite ways they talked about this, they were trying to reconcile how do you have fully God and fully man, yet united in one person, Eventually, in Chalcedon, 451, they had the formula we know today of, of two, you know, two natures united in one person. All right, but that was a long way from coming. So there's a lot of discussion. How do we capture this great truth that doesn't diminish his deity or diminish his humanity? And it was Chalcedon which finally brought it all together in 451. And they, at one point, they were talking about the, the God-man the God becoming man and without becoming less than God and yet never less than fully man. That's how he could become hungry. That's how he could become thirsty. That's how he could die, actually. If you don't have a full humanity, you don't have the incarnation. He's the God-man. If you compromise his deity or his humanity, you lose something. Evangelicals mostly fight for his deity. 
but we should be just as adamantly fighting for his humanity. Both are so fully present in the incarnation. At one point, one of the church fathers said, it's kind of like wood that's on fire. Wood and fire are two separate things. But when wood is on fire, you can't separate the two. And that's what it was like in the incarnation. Jesus Christ set the world on fire. He reenacted re the whole of the human race. And suddenly no flesh would be the same once God entered this flesh. And you can't separate the two. God, we're told, would behold his glory. It's, again, this fire from the wilderness. And no darkness can ever put it out. Some translations can't understand it, can't comprehend it, cannot extinguish it. The power of this light into the world. In fact, it actually points out that this light gives light to everyone coming into the world. That's another great Wesleyan point that Wesley made a point of. It's not simply that the incarnation is for us, though of course that's, it's never less than that, but by virtue of Christ coming to the world, it lifts the fog off of the whole world. There's so much light now in the world just because God in Christ has walked in our midst. There's a youth group in Ohio that attempted what actually my youth group did when I was growing up. They wanted to have a live nativity scene. Anybody here have, ever had a live one? Some of you had you know, live, you, know, you get the animals and everything. So they got you know, donkeys and they got everything and they, they try to reenact the whole thing properly. And they did this every night, you know, for the whole of the week before Christmas. And by the time it got to Christmas Eve, it was, they were doing two shows a night, the donkey had had enough. <laughs> I mean, already on one night, uh, he had gotten loose, and they had to go corral and bring him back. Uh, but at this point, he had had enough. So at a critical moment, when Mary was coming, you know, into Bethlehem as they reenacted the scene, the donkey had enough. He slung Mary off, turned around, and he bit her. <laughs> Thankfully, there was a hospital right across the street from this church in Ohio. And so Joseph, who was attentive to the scene, took Mary, led her across the street. You can imagine yourself, you're in the hospital, this pristine environment, the, you know, the emergency room is you know, immaculately clean, and in walks these two children in bathrobes with tinsel and straw stuck all over to them. And this Joseph says, you know, Mary has just been bitten by a donkey. <laughs> in some ways, I think Christmas can become like that. You know, it's something like we're, we're so, you know, we celebrate something way back then that happened. It's this removed scene, you know, an agrarian scene in a, in a faraway place at a faraway time. And we can't even imagine it in our world of chat rooms and Twitter and all the rest. And part of the power of this whole account is that John says, recognize that this is God coming into your world. He walks in the midst of our world. He still is in our midst to the church of Jesus Christ walking among us. And so I pray that we would recognize in this story afresh that this is not actually the great uh, rags to riches story. This is the great riches to rags story. 
This is the greatest condescension ever witnessed in the history of the universe. God becoming man. And yet God does it that we might someday share fully in his glory. And that's the good news of this season. Thanks be to God. Amen.